Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob. I'm reading today from a Charles Spurgeon sermon. It's called The Law, Written on the Heart. And we talked about the first time the tablets that the law is written on, meaning the heart itself, how hard that can be. But we move on now to the, the writing itself. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. What is this writing? First, the matter of it is the law of God. God writes upon the hearts of his people that which is already revealed. He inscribes there nothing novel and unrevealed, but his own will, which he has already given us in the book of the law. He writes upon the heart by gracious operation that which he has already written in the Bible by gracious revelation. He writes not philosophy, nor imagination, nor superstition, nor fanaticism, nor idle fancies. If any man says to me, God has written such and such a thing on my heart, I reply, okay, show me it in this book. For if it be not according to the other scriptures, it's not a scripture of God. A fancy as to a man's being a prophet or a prince or an angel may be on a man's heart, but God did not write it there. For his own declaration is, I will write my law in their hearts. And he speaks not of anything beyond. The nonsense of modern pretenders to prophecy is no writing of God. It would be a dishonor to a sane man to ascribe it to him. How can it be of the Lord? He here promises to write his own law on the heart, but nothing else. Be you content to have the law written on your soul and wander not into vain imaginings, lest you receive a strong delusion to believe a lie. Observing, however, that God says he will write his whole law on the heart, this is included in the words, my law. God's work is complete in all its parts and beautifully harmonious. He will not write one command and leave out the rest, as do many in their reforms. They become indignant in their virtue against a particular sin, but they riot in other evils. Drunkenness is to them the most damnable of all transgressions, but covetousness and uncleanness they wink at. They denounce theft and yet defraud. They cry out against pride and yet indulge envy. Thus they are partial and, and do, uh, do the work of the Lord deceitfully. It must not be so. God does not set before us a partial holiness, but the whole moral law. I will write my law in their hearts. Human reforms are generally lopsided, but the Lord's work of grace is balanced and proportionate. The Lord writes the perfect law in the hearts of men because he intends to produce perfect men. Mark again that on the heart there is written, not the law toned down and altered, but my law. That very same law which was at first written on the heart of man unfallen. Paul says of natural men that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. There is enough of light left on the conscience to condemn men for most of their iniquities. The original record of the law upon man's heart at his creation has been injured and almost obliterated by man's fall and his subsequent transgressions. But the Lord, in renewing the heart, makes the writing fresh and vivid 
even the writing of the first principles of righteousness and truth. Uh, But to come a little closer to the matter, what does the scripture mean by writing the law of God in the heart? The writing itself includes a great many things. A man who has the law of God written on his heart, first of all, knows it. He is instructed uh, in the ordinances and statutes of the Lord. He is an illuminated person and no longer one of those who, who know not the law and are cursed. God's Spirit has taught him what is right and what is wrong. He knows this by heart and therefore can no longer put darkness for light and light for darkness. This law next, uh, abides upon his memory. When he had it only upon a tablet, he must needs go into his house to look at it, but now he carries it about with him in his heart, and he knows at once what will be right and what will be wrong. God has given him a touchstone by which he tries things. He finds that all is not gold that glitters, and all is not holy which pretends to that character. He separates the precious from the vile, And he does this habitually, for his knowledge of God's law and his memory of it are attended by a discernment of spirit, which God has wrought in him, so that he quickly discerns what is according to the mind of God and what is not. Now, this is a great point, for some things are commonly done by men, which they will even defend and say that there is no wrong in them. But according to the divine rule, they are utterly unjust. God's people judge these things and take no pleasure in them. A sacred instinct warns the believer of the approach of sin. Long before public sentiment has proclaimed a hue and cry against questionable practices, the Christian man, even if deluded for a while by current custom, yet feels a trembling and an uneasiness. Even if he consents outwardly, being overborne by general opinion, a something within protests and leads him to consider whether the matter can be defended. As soon as he detects the evil, he shrinks from it. It is a grand thing to possess a universal detector, so that go where you may, you are not dependent upon the judgment of others, and therefore you are not deceived, as multitudes are. This, however, is only a part of the matter, and a very small part comparatively. The law is written on a man's heart further than this. When he consents unto the law that it is good, when his conscience being restored cries, Yes, that is so, and ought to be so. That command by which God has forbidden a certain course is a proper and prudent command. It ought to be enjoined. What is a hopeful sign when a man no longer wishes that the divine commands were other than they are, but confirms them by the verdict of his judgment. Are there not men who, in their anger, wish that killing were no murder? Are there not others who do not steal, and yet they wish they might take their neighbor's goods? Are there not many who wish that fornication and adultery were not vices? This proves that their hearts are depraved, but it is not so with the regenerate. They would not have the law altered on any account. Their vote is with the law, They regard it as the guardian of society, the basis on which the peace of the universe can alone be built. For only by righteousness can any order of things be established. If we could possess the wisdom of God, 
we should make just that law which God has made. For the law is holy and just and good and promotes man's highest advantage. It is a great thing when a man gets as far as that. But furthermore, there is wrought in the heart by God a love to the law as well as a consent to it, such a love that the man thanks God that he has given him such a fair and lovely representation of what perfect holiness would be, that he has given such measuring lines by which he knows how a house is to be builded in which God can dwell. Thus thanking the Lord, his prayer, desire, longing, hungering, and thirsting are after righteousness, that he may in all things be according to the mind of God. It is a glorious thing when the heart delights itself in the law of the Lord and finds therein its solace and, and pleasure. The law is fully written on the heart when a man takes pleasure in holiness and feels a deep pain whenever sin approaches him. Oh, my dear friend, the Lord has done great things for you and every evil thing is obnoxious to you. Even though you fall into sin uh, through the infirmity of your flesh, yet if it causes you intense agony and sorrow, it is because God has written his law in your heart. Even though you cannot be as holy as you want to be, yet if the ways of holiness are your pleasure, if they are the very element in which you live as much as the fish lives in the sea, then you are the subject of a very wonderful change of heart. It is not so much what you do as what you delight to do which becomes the clearest test of your character. Many strictly religious people who go to and fro to church and chapel would be uncommonly glad if they did not feel bound to do so. Is not their public worship a dead formality? A great many people have family prayers and private prayers who wish they could be rid of the, of the nuisance. Is there any... Religion in bodily exercises which are burdensome to the heart? Nothing is acceptable to God until it is acceptable to yourself. God will not receive your sacrifice unless you offer it willingly. How contrary this is to the notion of many, for they say, You see, I deny myself by uh, going so many times to a place of worship and by private prayer. Therefore, I must be truly religious. Well, the very reverse. Far nearer the truth. When it becomes a misery to serve God, then indeed the heart is far away from spiritual health. For when the heart is renewed, it delights to worship and serve the Lord. Instead of saying, I would omit prayer if I could, the regenerate mind cries, I wish I could be always praying. Instead of saying, I would keep away from the assembly of God's people if I could, the newborn nature wishes like David to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a great evidence of the writing of the law upon the heart when holiness becomes a pleasure and sin becomes a sorrow. When this is done, what great things God has done for us. The main point of the whole is this, that whereas our nature was once contrary to the law of God, so that whatever God forbade we at once desired, and whatever God commanded, we therefore began to dislike. The Holy Spirit comes and changes our nature and makes it congruous to the law. So that now, whatsoever God forbids, we forbid. Whatsoever God commands, our will commands. How much better to have the law written upon the heart than upon tables of stone.
If anybody should inquire how the Lord keeps the writing upon the heart legible, I should like to spend a minute or two in showing the process. How the Holy Ghost first writes the law on the heart, I cannot tell. The outward means are the preaching of the word and the reading of it. But how the Holy Ghost directly operates on the soul, we do not know. It is one of the great mysteries of grace. This much we know within ourselves, that whereas we were blind, now we see. And whereas we abhorred the law of God, we now feel an intense delight in it. That the Holy Ghost wrought this change, we also know. But how he did it remains unknown. That part of his holy office, which we can discern, is done according to the usual laws of mental operation. He enlightens by knowledge, convinces by argument, leads by persuasion, strengthens by instruction, and so forth. So far also we know that that one way by which the law is kept written upon a Christian's heart is that there is a sense of God's presence. The believer feels that he could not sin with God looking on. It would need a brazen face for a man to play the traitor in the presence of a king. Such things are done under the rose, as men word it, but not before the monarch's face. And so the Christian feels that he dwells in God's sight, and this forbids him to disobey. The eye of the Heavenly Father is the best monitor of the child of God. Next, the Christian has a lively sense within him of the degradation which sin once brought upon him. If there is one thing I never can forget personally, it is the horror of my heart while I was yet under sin. God revealed my state to me. Ah, friends, the old proverb that a, a burnt child dreads the fire has an intensity of truth about it in the case of one who has ever been burnt by sin so as to be driven to despair by it. He hates it with a perfect hatred. And by that means, God writes the law upon his heart. But a sense of love is a yet more powerful factor. Let a man know that God loves him. Let him feel sure that God always did love him from before the foundations of the world, and he must try to please God. Let him be assured that the Father loved him so much as to give his only begotten Son to die that he might live through him, and he must love God and hate evil. A sense of pardon, of adoption, and of God's sweet favor, both in providence and in grace, must sanctify man. He cannot willfully offend against such love. On the contrary, he feels himself bound to obey God in return for such unsearchable grace. Thus, by a sense of love, doth God write his law, upon the hearts of his people. Another very powerful pen with which the Lord writes is to be found in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus spit upon and scourged and crucified, we feel that we must hate sin with all the intensity of our nature. Can you count the purple drops of his redeeming blood and then go back to live in the iniquity which cost the Lord so dear? Impossible. The death of Christ writes the law of God very deeply upon the central heart of man. The cross is the crucifier of sin. Besides that, God actually establishes his holy law in the throne of the heart by giving to us a new and heavenly life. There is within a Christian an immortal principle which cannot sin because 
it is born of God and cannot die. For it is the living and incorruptible seed which liveth and abideth forever. In regeneration, there is imparted to us a, a something altogether foreign to our corrupt nature. A divine principle is dropped into the soul which can neither be corrupted nor made to die. And by this means the law is written on the heart. I, I do not pretend to explain the process of regeneration, but for certain it involves a divine life implanted of the Holy Spirit. Once more, the Holy Ghost himself dwells in believers. I pray you never forget this marvelous doctrine that as truly as ever God dwelt in human flesh in the person of the God-man mediator, so truly doth the Holy Ghost dwell in the bodies of all redeemed men and women who have been born again. And by the force of that indwelling, he keeps the mind forever permeated with holiness, forever subservient to the will of the Most High. And now, Roman numeral three, we turn for just a minute to think of the writer. Who is it that writes the law upon the heart? It is God himself. I will do it, saith he. Note first that he has a right uh, to indict his law on the heart. He made the heart. It is his tablet. Let him write there whatever he wills. As clay in the hands of the potter, so are we in his hands. Note next that he alone can write the law on the heart. It will never be written there by any other hand. The law of God is not to be written on the heart by human power. Alas, how often have I expounded the law of God and the gospel of God, but I've got no further than the ear. Only the living God can write upon the living heart. This is noble work. Angels themselves cannot attain to it. This is the finger of God. As God alone can write there and must write there, so he alone shall have the glory of that writing when once it is perfected. When God writes... He writes perfectly. You and I make blots and errors. There needs to be a list of errata at the end of every human piece of writing. But when God writes, blots, our mistakes are, are out of the question. No holiness can excel the holiness produced by the Holy Spirit when his inward work is fully completed. Moreover, he writes indelibly. I defy the devil to get a single letter of the law of God out of a man's heart when God has written it there. When the Holy Ghost has come with all the power of his divinity and rested on our nature and stamped into it the life of holiness, then the devil may come with his black wings and all his unhallowed craftiness, but he can never erase the eternal lines. We bear in our hearts the marks of the Lord God eternal, and we shall bear them eternally. Written rocks bear their inscriptions long, but written hearts bear them forever and ever. Does not the Lord say, I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me? Blessed be God for those immortal principles which forbid the child of God to sin. And now I wish to finish Roman numeral 4 by noticing the results of the law being thus written in the heart. I hope, while I have been preaching about it, many of you have been saying, I hope that the law will be written in my heart. Well, remember that this is a gift. 
and privilege of the covenant of grace, not a work of man. Dear friends, if any of you have said, I do not find anything good in me, therefore I cannot come to Christ, you talk foolishly. The absence of good is the reason why you should come to Christ, to have your needs supplied. Oh, but if I could write God's law in my heart, I would come to Christ, would you? What would you want Christ for then? But if the law is not written on your heart, then come to Jesus to have it so written. The new covenant says, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write my law in their hearts. Come then to have the law thus inscribed within. Come just as you are before a single line has been inscribed. The Lord Jesus loves to prepare his own tablets and write every letter of his own epistles. Come to him just as you are, that he may do all things for you. What are the results of the law being written on the hearts of men? Frequently, the first result is great sorrow. If I have God's law written on my heart, then I say to myself, Ah, me, that I should have lived a, a lawbreaker so long. This blessed law, this, this lovely law, why, I have not even thought of it, or if I have thought of it, it has provoked me to disobedience. Sin revived, and I died when the commandment came. We wring our hands and we cry, How could we be so wicked as to break so just a law? How could we be so willful as to go against our own interests? Know we not that a breach of the commandment is an injury to ourselves? And thus we are in bitterness, as one that is in bitterness for the death of his firstborn. I do not believe God has ever written his law on your hearts if you have not mourned over sin. One of the earliest signs of grace is a dew upon the eyes because of sin. The next effect of it is there comes upon the man a strong and stern resolve that he will not break that law again, but will keep it with all his might. He cries out with David, I have sworn and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. His whole heart says when reading the precepts of the Lord, yes, that is what I ought to be, that is what I wish to be, that is what I will be, according to the will of God. That strong resolve soon leads to a fierce conflict, for another law lifts up its head, a law in our members, and that other law cries, not so quick there, your new law which has come into your soul to rule you shall not be obeyed, I will be master. Well, he who is born within us to be our king finds the old Herod ready to slay the young child, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Each one of these swears warfare against the new monarch and the fresh power that has come into the heart. Some of you know what this struggle means. It's a very hard fight with some to keep from actual sin. Have you not been uh, troubled with a quick temper? When, it, when a quick temper had to put your hand to your mouth to stop yourself from saying what you used to say, but what you never wish to say again? Have you not often gone upstairs to get alone, feeling that you would soon slip if the Lord did not hold you up? How wise to get alone with God and cry to Him for help! How prudent to watch day and night against evil! Certain braggers talk about having got beyond all that. 
I should be glad to think that there are such brethren, uh, but I should want to keep them in a glass case to show them around, or in an iron safe where thieves could not get at them. I, I conceive it to be a snare of the devil to imagine that you are beyond the deed of daily watchfulness. For my own part, I have not passed beyond conflict and struggle. I bear testimony that the battle grows more stern every day. Those of God's people with whom I associate, I find fighting and wrestling still. Sometimes I know the devil does not roar, but I am more afraid of him when he is quiet than when he rages. I would sooner he would roar of the two, for a roaring devil is better than a sleeping devil. Whenever he gives way, he only gives an inch to take an L. And whenever you begin to say to yourself, My corruptions are all dead. I have no tendencies to sin now. You're in awful peril. Poor soul, you do not know what you're talking about. God send you to school and give you a little light, and you'll sing to another tune, I am sure, before long. These are the incidental results. When the Lord writes the law in the heart, strifes and struggles are common within the man, for holiness strives for the mastery. But does not something better than this come of the divine heart writing? Oh, yes, there comes actual obedience. The man not only consents to the law that it is good, he obeys it. And if there be anything which Christ commands, no matter what it is, the man seeks to do it, and not only wishes to do it, but actually does it. And if there be aught that is wrong, he not only wishes to abstain from it, but he does abstain from it. God helping him, he becomes upright and righteous and sober and godly and loving and Christ-like. For this it is which the Spirit of God works in him. He, he would be perfect were it not for the old lusts of the flesh, which linger even in the hearts of the regenerate. Now the believer feels intense pleasure in everything that is good. If there be anything right and true in the world, he is on the side of it. If, if there be defeats to truth, he is defeated. But if truth marches on conquering and to conquer, he conquers and takes and divides the spoil with joy. Now he is on God's side. Now he is on Christ's side. Now he is on truth's side. Now he is on holiness's side. And a man cannot be that without being a happy man. With all his strugglings and all his weepings and all his confessions, he is a happy man because he's on the happy side. God is with him, and he is with God, and he must be blessed. As this proceeds, the man becomes more and more prepared to dwell in heaven. He is changed into God's image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Our fitness for heaven is not a thing that will be clapped upon us in the last few minutes of our life, just as we're going to die. But the children of God have a meekness a suitableness for heaven as soon as ever they are saved. And that suitableness grows and increases till they are ripe. And then like ripe fruit, they drop from the tree and find themselves in the bosom of their father, God. God will never keep a soul out of heaven half a minute after it is fully prepared to go there. And so when God has fitted us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, we shall enter at once into the joy of our Lord. My brethren, well, I feel I have talked feebly and prosily about one of the most blessed subjects that ever occupied the thoughts of man, how God's law shall be kept, 
how it shall be honored, how holiness shall come into the world, and we shall no longer be rebellious. Well, herein, let us trust in our Lord Jesus, who is to be the surety of that covenant, of which this is one great promise, quote, I will put my law in their inward parts, and in their hearts will I write it, and God do so to us, for Christ's sake. Amen. That's taken from the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, volume 28, number 1687. All of this is available, by the way, on the Puritan Download, at Puritan Downloads. You can get there the Puritan Hard Drive. I call it my PhD, and you can have anything that's in there, and it'll make you wise wiser than any PhD that you've ever met, uh, go to Puritan Hard Drive um, and uh, they will they will help you find that. Well, we've had a long enough time today. I won't go over the book of the day as I have been. We'll do that tomorrow. Uh, next time we get together, we'll continue with Scarlet Threads and I hope you will join us there. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun and Lord willing, we get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>